Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden-Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. In honor of the 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio, I have a special treat for us today as I'm speaking with Kathy Keeler, Wesleyan class of 1978, who won a gold medal in rowing as part of the Women's Eight in the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Kathy, to start out, I understand you were basically born on the water in Galveston, Texas. Were you athletic from a young age? Uh, when I was growing up, I did whatever sport I could find, uh, but girls weren't really encouraged uh, to be on teams. I couldn't be on Little League. I couldn't. There, my father was in the military, and we traveled and. It wasn't until I was in middle school that there was a, they started a softball league of three teams just so that girls could play because they wouldn't let us play Little League. That hadn't passed yet. And so I didn't have any real sports except that I just loved to do whatever there was. I dreamed of being an Olympian. I thought I'd be a pentathlete. I figured I was a good, pretty good runner, and, but I never did anything until I got to high school. And uh, Title IX passed my sophomore year, junior year, 1973, and they let the track team went co-ed, and that was the first time I had a real coach that knew anything. We kind of had girls' sports association sports before that, and I found that I was pretty good, and it was fun, and I moved on from there. How early did you actually pick up an oar? Uh, I think my second or third day at Wesleyan. Okay. So in high school, I had done whatever I did. I did cross country and running and track. And when I came to Wesleyan to look at it, I walked up into Fairweather Gym, which was where the athletic offices were. And I walked up the stairs, and Pat Callahan and Duke Snyder were standing at the top of the stairs. And Pat goes, "Are you a water woman?" And I was like, "What the hell is a water woman?" And he goes, oh, "Well, you must not be a swimmer. So I'll tell you about rowing." <laughs> and after I got in, and uh, I did play field hockey in the fall, but I wanted to try rowing, so I road and sculled at two o'clock and then had field hockey practice at four my freshman fall and that sucked me in i just thought it was just beautiful from the first stroke i find that rowing is one of those sports that people try and they either love it or they hate it it is a bit masochistic in some ways <laughs> um what was it about it that seemed so appealing to you particularly since it was a new sport for you well i think you know, I got to start sculling, which was fun that fall, and just the fluidity of it and that you were outside, but you could work hard and go as long as you could, and I don't know. As we went on, I in the spring, I was on the, on the Varsity 8, and uh, we lost, like, every race, and that was didn't really appeal to my competitive instincts, but uh, I still like the practices. I think you, if you're a rower, you have to love the practice and the work and being out there all the time, and then you learn to be a better and better racer, I think. Going back a little bit, what was your path to Wesley, and how did you decide to come here? Uh, so after my junior year, your mom goes, it's time to start looking at schools. I was at a public school in Maryland, and uh, I had someone in my head, I decided Yale was the place I should go to. Not that I knew how any, that was realistic or anything, but... Uh, so I wanted to look at Yale, and my mother had a good friend whose son had not gotten into Wesleyan, but she figured it was close to Yale, so we would do those first. We went to Wesleyan first, and then we were going to do Yale in the afternoon, and I showed up on campus, 
It had to be in June or July, and it was just so beautiful. It fit all my pictures of what a college was supposed to look like, and then the people in admissions were just like the kind of people I was wanted to hang around with. I was kind of smitten immediately, and then we went down to Yale, and we couldn't find admissions, and nobody knew anything, and I'm like, well, I'm not going here. And I, I did look at other places, but I kind of, that was, I was like, this is it. I don't need to look anymore. You know, I was, it, in some ways, I think I was fortunate in that there was not really athletic recruiting for women or anything. Wesleyan mm-hmm. has, was just barely co-ed, and so, I don't know, it just seemed like a free place where you could find yourself and figure out who you were going to be. What did you end up studying while you were here? Well, I majored in economics. I started out thinking I was going to be architecture or chemistry. I went, I, I took, for first two years I took classes in all kinds of fields, and by and spring of sophomore year, well, I have to major in something. Nothing had grabbed me. I said, so I just picked the professor that I liked the most was Dick Miller, and I said, I'm just going to major in that. <laughs> so liberal arts school, you know, at the end, whatever you major in, you can move on to something. It's just learning how to think and write and be a person that's going to get you where you want to go in life, I think. Well, and Dick Miller is certainly still a prominent figure on campus, even though he's officially retired. And in fact, he told me a story recently of a conversation that you two had while you were getting close to graduation. Do you remember that conversation? He brings it up. Yep. You know, when you're you're a senior and I had roommates applying for things, schools and jobs and I was still growing and thinking, and I didn't really, I had really no idea what I was going to do, but I thought, I'll just go to grad school. So I took the GREs, and I'm like, somehow I was in his office, and I I was like, I go, what should I do? Because I had an opportunity to go to a, a rowing club in the summer, and he goes, you should go do that. Forget about grad school. See where it takes you. <laughs> Something like that, he said. He takes all the credit for pushing me on in the sport. <laughs> and tell me about, how you made the decision, the, the commitment to train seriously for rowing after graduation. How did that come about in the, in the few years right after graduation? Right. So I, I think whatever you choose to do, it's always a process. So I went to this club even before graduation and tried out. And I, I kind of had this in the back of my mind. I said, I'll just do this until someone tells me I'm not good enough. So I went to this club and I qualified for their team and we went to nationals and I won a gold medal in the senior four, which isn't the elite boat, and uh, then I got invited to the national team development camp. It just seemed like just keep rolling with the punches, and that was fun, and I learned a lot about training. And then I'm like, well, what do you do? So I came home, and at the end of the summer, and I applied for a couple jobs and almost got one, unfortunately. Uh, But then I decided I really had to go to Philadelphia, where the club that I'd been rowing in was, and he had kind of a pre-elite program. In those days, you trained at a club all year, and then you, if you were good enough, you get invited to try it for the national team for, in the summer. There was a camp and a selection process. So I moved back to Philly in the wintertime and trained with them and did the right things and got invited to the, got to the selection camp the next summer. And I'm like, oh, we'll just see what happens. And then uh, it was interesting, and I still didn't row beautifully yet, and uh, I worked hard and looked like I might make the team and then eventually when it came down to final cuts I was the last port cut Ooh. even though I had sort of, in my mind sort of beaten one of the people who was not cut so it was kind of a little disgruntled but I knew I was really close and I was really young and uh, that was 1979 so the Olympics were the next year so I thought I'd get, 
do it one more year and see how see how it went and uh, kind of devoting myself pretty much full time finding odds and end jobs to make ends meet and sharing rooms with other people and living on the cheap, no car, no nothing. <laughs> but it was fun traveling around and doing that stuff. And uh, in 1980, we were training, and then in January, Jimmy Carter said we weren't going to go because of the uh, invasion in Afghanistan by the Russians. So then right. like, some, well, many of the older people just retired right then, and other older people like Anita de France started suing in court saying he didn't have the right to tell us we couldn't go. But as a someone who hadn't made the team, I was just determined that I was going to make the team anyway because they picked the team and they sent us to Europe to race in a few regattas, and then we had a big party in Washington at Congress and the White House and stuff. So it was fun. It was good, and it was sort of satisfying to say you made the team, but uh, you didn't get to go to the games and march in the parade, so there was something left to do. So how did the next four years play out? You know, you were denied the opportunity to compete in 1980. You were looking at four years before the next go around. What was your mental state at that time? Were you determined to stick it out for another four years? Did you try other things? How did that work out? It is a long thing to think about. And the the truth is I started coaching that fall. The club that I had been training with in Philadelphia. The coach was the head coach at the University of Pennsylvania, and he asked me to be his assistant coach. So that kind of, because I'd always, once I got to this point, I was always intrigued by watching other people row and what the training and how to rig boats. It paid virtually nothing, but so I started coaching that year, and I was training at the same time. There were a number of people around. And then I got to May, and I was like, I've been training for three years nonstop. Just don't want to go to the summer camp. Going to the selection camp is just very emotionally intense and hard. And I just, all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm not going. And I just stopped and took the summer off and did things with my family, which I hadn't done for three years and uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, I kind of, I don't know, I might have thought I was sort of done. I, I just, I didn't know. And then I got a job in Boston working in the, consulting firm using a little bit of my economics background moved to boston and uh right about november after the head of the charles all of a sudden i was like you know i could still row so i joined a club here and went back to it and uh it kept working out i ended up winning the pair and being in the top boat that year and winning a silver medal and then this was at nationals that, oh, no, the Worlds. Oh, okay. Before at Worlds that year. And then I started coaching at Smith that fall because I needed to. I, at that point, you weren't supported at all, so you had to make some money. And after spending a winter working in an office, I was like, I need to be outside. I just wasn't happy looking at, especially getting to the work when it was dark in Boston and getting out of work when it's dark in Boston. All right. It was just like, this is not a life. I can't stand it. I need to see sunlight. So. The Smith job opened up, and I, so after I got back from the Worlds in Lucerne in 82, I went out to Smith and started working with that, and trying to juggle coaching 50 women and training yourself was a trick the first year, and I didn't do a very good job of it, but I still snuck onto the team somehow at the bottom of the 
totem pole and realized I had to get an assistant coach and various things. And Smith was very nice and let me take time off when I needed to go to the camps that they were running that year. It's a little more work. And somehow I won the pair trials, which put me in the top seat, and the coach told me he wanted to stroke the boat, so, you know, like it all. And then we had a great team. He, it was just really a, a special summer rowing together. And it all worked out. We were fast. <laughs> Obviously. And I know that the for, for listeners who might not be familiar with the sport, the stroke of the boat is the rower who is really setting the pace for the rest of the boat. I mean, the, the coxswain is doing the steering and is, is calling out a lot of commands that you're following along with. But at the end of the day, the other seven rowers are following you. And there's a leadership component to that. Uh, did you find that you were in an ad hoc leadership position by being put in the stroke seat? Uh, I love to stroke. Uh, it, I love to set the rhythm, and I love people to follow me, and they like to follow. So it's kind of, I think it's, you, you're lucky if you're a coach and you can find someone who wants to do it as much as I did. So. Uh, it, but it was interesting. It took a while for me. Like in 80, I wasn't nearly ready to stroke. But by 82, that was really the position I wanted to be in. And uh, I've, I I, know, you have to be pretty confident and sure of yourself. But by that point, I was. And uh, that made it extra fun for me. I don't know. I think real strokes, like, that's just the right seat. Everyone else... Just follow me and we'll go. You know, <laughs> but you have to be like willing to take on responsibility for the whole thing. But you know, it's not all you. But you know that you could make it. You can make it go better, and you could make it go worse if you're not a good stroke. So, I I'm very proud of the fact that well, I think even today people like to row in a boat with me because <laughs> I'll make it feel pretty good. No, that's great. It was always my favorite seat to row as well. Um, now, what did you feel the crew's chances were going into the 1984 Olympic Games? Who did you feel was your main competition? Well, after the boycott of Moscow, the Russians boycotted L.A., so that was sort of a problem, and they didn't announce it till late, but we were all pretty sure that was going to happen. We went to a regatta in Switzerland, in Lucerne, and the Russians weren't there because it was their national, their selection part, but the East Germans were there. We still had the East Germans, and they were very tough competition, and we set a world record and beat everybody soundly, and they went after that and lost to the Russians too. So, I mean, beat the Russians, I, think. I don't know. So we knew that we were kind of top, the top guns, so we knew we were favored to win, and that added a lot of pressure that one didn't, in a little sport where you don't think about that kind of stuff very much we were I think it was hard mentally to know you were favored but we relished going to LA and rowing on our home course and uh, seeing who comes so who showed up the Romanians came Peter Uberoff got them to be the only eastern Bloc country to come and the Canadians who we knew some of them were pretty fast I think those were the two that we were most worried about and then it turned out the Dutch put together an eight out of their double and pair and quad or something and they ended up being close but it was really between us and the russians after we got to the 500 meter mark i mean us and the romanians 
and I gather that was a pretty close finish. Can you tell me a bit about the race? <laughs> well, we rode the last 1,000-meter race. Uh, when they first let women into the Olympics, they didn't think women could row 2,000 meters, which is the distance that the men row. So until from 76 to 984, the women rode 1,000. And uh, so it's an all-out sprint. It's going to... Uh, it had, three minutes hadn't been broken, but we did break three minutes. And so you're rowing at all in the 40 strokes a minute range, which means timing has to be impeccable along with the power. Uh, and as an athlete, you really can't look because even that little peak is going to detract from rowing at 42 strokes a minute. And you have to trust that your coxswain is telling you what's really happening. And it, we were in lane five, and the remainings were in lane two. So even in my peripheral vision, I couldn't see them. I could see the crews next to us, but not the ones all the way over. So we're sprinting. We're going like mad. And, but we were behind at the 500 by a couple feet, and it was even until about 250 to go. And then when we took it up to 48, we got almost a third of the length. We got over a deck ahead at the finish, but still I didn't think we had won because I never saw that boat over on the far side. And I kept talking to the cock at the finish line as we're panting away. She go, I go, did we win? She says, yes. I'm like, are you sure? I never saw anybody. How could that be? But anyway, so it worked out, but it was pretty intense. That's exciting. I wish I'd been there. <laughs> you can see it. It's on YouTube. Oh, there you go. Women's 1984, eight. It's on YouTube now. I crack up that some 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 younger a kid that I had told about it that I was a gold medalist looked found it and I'm like, oh my gosh! So there it is, always. Okay, so I'm going to tell all the listeners that you have my official permission to pause this interview right now to go watch the YouTube video. <laughs> So it's been speculated that one of the reasons that the Eastern Bloc women's teams were so successful, including Romania, was because they had equal access to men, with men, to resources like facilities and financial support, and that that was not true for a lot of the Western women's teams. Did you feel like you were treated differently from the men who raced with you in 84? I think in America, in the U.S., we were pretty fortunate, even that Title IX had passed. And I wouldn't say equal, but at least we got to do it. You know, when we were rowing, the French women didn't get to row. The British women barely got to row. There was not a, a country in, East, in Western Europe that had a competitive women team. I knew people, a woman who went to Australia from America and had a double that did everything that the qualifying committee had said they had to do. And... Then the committee said, well, we don't have money, you can't go, even though they sent men that didn't qualify as well. So uh, I think I, we were very lucky to be in America. So, but the competition, it was us, the Canadians, and then the Eastern Bloc was, were, who, were the women who got to train hard enough to be competitive. Uh, all Italy, Fran France, and England that are really strong now, the Danes, it just wasn't – women weren't supposed to be athletes still, and so – we had a big advantage on that front. One of the things you already referenced was that up until 1988, women were still rowing a 1,000-meter course instead of the men's standard of 2,000 meters. And I've also read that the there are physiologists who say that rowing a 2,000-meter course is the athletic equivalent of playing two basketball games back-to-back. 
how did you feel about that bump up from 1,000 to 2,000 meters? And did you wish you could have rode a 2,000-meter course? Well, that's an interesting... Well, I retired in that day, so I didn't really think about it very much. Um, except, you know, when I was at Wesleyan, we rode 2,000 meters. Okay. And you have so much more time to have the middle of the race mm-hmm. and the, set the rhythm, and it wouldn't have to be 42 strokes a minute the whole race. So it's the difference between an all-out sprint versus something where you have a body of the race that you have to train for slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some level, I'm very much fast twitch, so rowing 42 was not really a problem for me, but I don't think it would have been a problem to row 2,000 meters either. I think you acclimate and you do a little bit different training regime, and uh, I think it would be funner. You'd have more time to enjoy. I don't, I don't know enjoy is the right word. <laughs> I think... Uh, I think 2,000 meters is a better distance. <laughs> right, right. A better test. At 1,000, you can't make one mistake. Right. It has to be perfect because it's, you're, you're, it's so much going on, and I think there's a little bit more time to breathe and a little more time to react to what's going on around you and stuff like that, so it's a little more interesting, I would say. Right, right. So you mentioned that you retired that day you received your gold medal so what happened after the games you know people who win a gold medal at the olympics that's supposed to be the pinnacle of your existence right so what do you do (laughs) the next day when you wake up in the morning (laughs) (laughs) oh it's pretty funny so you we the rowing is the first week of the olympics and so you we got moved we had we the rowing was held up in lake oh in ojai which is a little north of la and we stayed at uc santa barbara for the rowing dorms, and then we got moved into USC's dorms right after that, and uh, we have t- we could get tickets to some events. But my now husband, who who was, who was on the coach for the men's team, and I had made plans to I don't know why, but this is a great plan. I, I looked at something and I saw that we could go on a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon to move on, and uh, but it started the middle of the second week, so we just flew to Flagstaff like three days later and. Uh, went on an 11-day rafting trip, and his sons came too, and then we drove the car home and kind of had this adventure driving across America and coming back, and then I went back to coaching at Smith, you know, know, four weeks later, and uh, on with life. Did you find that your coaching changed at all as a result of having uh, trained at that level and having had that success? I think having trained and knowing what the sense of the boat makes you can, makes you speak more intimately about like no you like really knowing what you want it to feel like and what you want it to do but I think you can coach with either if, if you just have a passion for the sport but I can explain which muscles you want to feel at certain points of a drive or stroke or things that sometimes I don't think all coaches can do but but if you give a lot of respect because you haven't won the gold medal. No one doubts that you know what you're talking about, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Now, your late husband, rowing legend Harry Parker, was also an Olympian uh, before going on to coach at Harvard for a whopping 50 years. I'm curious to know how you two met. Oh, well, I, I did know who he was. In 1980, when we went over to Switzerland, when we had the rowing in Europe when we didn't get to go to Moscow. 
we raced in Lucerne, and then the women hosted a party, and I met him at that party. And we hit it off and started doing things together for four or five years before we decided that maybe we should make this permit. He was a lot older and other issues he had to deal with, but he was just really fun, and we was a nice relationship. And you have a daughter to you have a daughter together, from what I understand. We do. She's going to be a senior at Harvard this year, rowing and captain of the Radcliffe crew, as a matter of fact. Ah, <laughs> chip off the old block, two blocks. Yeah. <laughs> she got to choose it on her own accord. We didn't push it on her, but we were delighted that she decided it was a fun sport. So it's great. Right, right. And finally, what advice would you give to the current? U.S. Women's Eight as they go into their own Olympic Games? Stay focused. Don't forget to enjoy the fact that it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I would say. Kathy Keeler, Wesleyan Class of 1978, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.